Welcome to The Long Play, Portland Monthly's podcast featuring candid conversations with the city's most interesting thinkers, makers, and characters. I'm Editor-in-Chief Zach Dundas, and I'd like to welcome you to a very, very special episode of The Long Play. Uh, We're doing something that we've never done before. This is an in-house long play where we're just chatting amongst ourselves about one of our biggest projects of the year, which is the November issue and our Best Restaurants 2016 guide. I am here with the trifecta that comprises Portland Monthly's Restaurant and Dining Brain Trust, and proceeding invisibly to you, but to my left, let's hear who they all are. There are so many raised eyebrows during that <laughs> intro. Uh, I'm Kelly Clark. I'm a senior editor here at Portland Monthly. I'm Karen Brooks, resident food critic. And I'm Benjamin Tepler, associate editor. So between these three, uh, we took stock of the year in restaurants. We came up with our annual list of what we consider the best and most essential restaurants that's in the November issue, which is currently on newsstands. Um, I'd like to start, Karen, by talking a little bit about the overall formation of this list. We ended up choosing, I think, 12 restaurants to highlight. Um, we Months of discussion went into these choices. Um, but there was also some sort of some conceptual work at underway where we're trying to capture what's going on in the restaurant scene. I was wondering if you could start us out to talking about what trends you feel like are shaping this selection. Well, I think every year with uh, the way we do best restaurants, we're not we're not trying to be encyclopedic. We're trying to curate to select 10, 12 restaurants that places we can stand behind that say this is where we're going now but also places that maybe represent changing conversations I would say this year's group and we'll we'll go through them more in depth but a few of them we had we had two rising stars Tusk and Revelry we had places like um, Hanok which is really open only three days a week but has become sort of a, a hub for up-and-coming chefs and experimental ideas and May which is only open three nights a week but is doing sort of like the next iteration of a pop-up open three nights a week but doing kind of Appalachian food at communal tables with farm fresh vegetables so all of these places that we looked at in our conversations together are about changing conversations in Portland. We have felt and we've really been tracking it for the last couple years, kind of a new guard, a new guard of chefs. If you quickly look at Portland's history, I would say we had a group represented by Greg Higgins and Corey Schreiber, Vitali Paley, who ushered in a white tablecloth, beautiful farm to table era. That was followed by another group of people that we all know that really, you know, sort of helped set the table for putting Portland on the food scene. Gabriel Rucker at Le Pigeon and Naomi Pomeroy at at Beast, Andy Ricker at Pock Pock. Now I think we're seeing yet another new wave, a new guard of interesting, uh, fairly fairly young chefs. from Tusk, uh, Ryan Roadhouse at Nodoguru, really doing fantastic things with Japanese food. They're bringing in new energy, new conversations. I would say their food tends to be maybe 
lighter, moving away from some of the pork bombing comfort foods. So this for us, I think, was a, a real driving part of the conversation. Who do we feel is part of this group and who do we feel over the next, let's say, three, four, five years are really going to be making a mark on Portland's food scene? Van Kelly, does that resonate with you guys? I mean, as, as this package came together, we, we talked it through a lot, and I feel like um, that sense of there being a, a sort of new contingent that we wanted to talk about in terms of both the food that they're creating and the ideas that they represent did really come to the fore. But, how, but what's, what's your personal take on that trend toward new kinds of restaurants, different kinds of cuisines? Uh, absolutely, to agree with Karen, there is a uh, new shortage of wonderful neighborhood wood-fired joints. Our sort of general level of what you can expect on a weekday dinner is, is heads and shoulders as it, uh, than it has been in years past, but we keep seeing a sense of people who are pushing past that, who aren't just piggybacking on what the last generation did, but pushing it in a new generate, excuse me, in a new direction. And with that, vegetables were high on the list for that salads, uh, a vegan focus, a focus on plants, a focus on farms, and that's really become a through line for these new places. Uh, so it was a very exciting thing to Which see. Which you would think would be obvious in a place surrounded by, you know, the Willamette Valley and some of the, the really the greatest raw materials on the planet, but yet it's not all, I mean, everybody is sort of remotely seasonal, mm -hmm. but yet we're seeing some restaurants uh, take vegetables and roots and just pushing them and some new new ideas very much needed here. Yeah, and Portland. absolutely. Portland should be a center of that kind of thinking. For years, you know, we've been telling people, oh, you know, these main courses are great, but don't forget the salads, don't forget these vegetable sides. These people are doing amazing, amazing things with vegetables, but to see this new crop sort of bring it to the forefront is really exciting. And that might just be also, as people who eat for a living, there's almost so, only so much pork belly that you can eat before <laughs> life starts becoming uh, an arduous journey. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think um, I think it sort of it, it takes it takes a lot of energy and a lot of people to, to start pushing out of an identity um, that is surrounded by wood-fired cooking and pork belly and um, just tons of meat and heat. Um, and I think that's that's what this new generation is doing there sort of together bringing us into a new era. Well, more feminine, too. Mm -hmm. More, maybe, more influence of women in the kitchen, and may, maybe the men are, are more feminine, but I'm kind of just seeing this just sort of a lighter, I mean, there's no Absolutely. other way yeah, to say it. I mean, I think brighter and lighter. Really. Brighter yeah. and lighter and lighter. I mean, we definitely have a lot of, you know, macho swagger uh -huh. in our food here, and it, it's been fun. It's really kind of what sort of helped put Portland on the map. But it's also nice to see that that other that other side. There's a sense of lightness and refinement. If you look at Katie Millard at Coquine, who I think is a, a favorite of all three of us. And ours. one of our one of our right one yeah, of yeah she was last year's rising star and uh, yeah she was last year's rising yes. star chef and uh, this year she's one of our twelve. Uh, her restaurant Coquine is, and to see what she does there, it's a neighborhood bistro. It's something that you you think you know what's going to go on there you think you know the burger you think you know the sandwiches that are going to be there and she's turned it on its head um through technique and refinement i mean such a lighter experience than we are used to in this town so these two restaurants that we've identified as rising stars tusk 
and Revelry, they both essentially just opened right before the package was put together. Um, a bold call in some ways to, to put them forward as a, the two that are in a class by themselves. We'll talk in a second about why there's no restaurant of the year per se, which has been a traditional title that we've awarded, but we didn't award this year. But Karen, can you talk a little bit about what set these two apart and why uh, in your mind it was justified to, to sort of put them front and center here? Well, first let me say we are all about the bold call at Portland Monthly. I mean, there is always that element in a package like this where we're trying to stay roughly within a time frame of a year. Maybe we stretch out a little bit to 14 months, but we're trying to do things that are new. And when we're talking about the rising star, we're thinking about, okay, who is really going to not just sort of break out, but is somehow really going to rise, be a, a player, be influential. Um, last year, we made that call with Coquine, mm -hmm. uh, which Kelly just talked about, which really had only been open maybe for a couple months. We thought Katie, Katie Millard's feel for something that was sort of light and naturalistic and rustic and this very fresh, fresh approach with a great wine list, rethinking sort of like bringing, making the corner cafe like an everyday Michelin spot, uh, rolled the dice on that, worked out great. Doesn't always work out great, but you know, without <laughs> question, Coquina is now I'd say one of the top five restaurants in the city. A couple years ago, just to give a little context, uh, Holdfast, which was a totally unknown, not really even a restaurant. Uh, Will Preach was uh, like renting out what was a little sort of faux diner inside an incubator kitchen and doing these uh, sort of Scandinavian, Nordic tasting menu, experimental dinners. He was a one-man band doing everything himself. We thought this is, his food is great, this is fascinating. We even said in the piece, we're rolling the dice. Hey, like, this guy, you know, this this is new. The whole, the, the mode is new. And Hold Fast, I think, turned out um, to have cracked open a whole way of eating that we're seeing all over the city now. And now we've come to this year. Uh, two places, uh, Tuscan Revelry, really literally had opened in August. We weren't uh, that far off of deadline. These weren't people we had never heard of before. Tusk is um, an offshoot of Ava Jean's, which was our restaurant of the year several years ago. Um, a wonderful Italian restaurant on Southeast Division. It was originally owned by Dwayne Sorensen. The chef, Joshua McFadden, purchased Ava Jean's and his, uh, I guess, executive chef, Sam Smith, they together with some other partners opened Tusk. They source almost everything local. There's almost no meat on the menu, although they would not call it vegetarian. Uh, you walk into a room, as I'd mentioned earlier, that feels unlike anything in Portland. And you're know, looking and saying, this feels like a moment. It's not completely there. It hadn't even totally unfolded uh, when we were on deadline. Brunch had not started. Some of the entrees hadn't come. but. The excitement, the deliciousness, the number of dishes right out of the gate 
that were really good, really spot on. For me, it's always a little bit, are you still thinking about it the next day? <laughs> when people are saying to me where to go, where should I eat right now? I kept tusk, tusk, tusk. Uh, Revelry, uh, two chefs very established in Seattle already. Um, Rachel Yang and her husband, they've been James Beard finalist. It's sophisticated and snacky and you walk into this place, they've collaborated with some Portland friends who have a nightclub here and you walk in and it's completely different than Tusk, completely different than anything else here. It has a hip hop vibe, it feels kind of sophisticated, um, a great bar. And again, I mean, they're in some ways they're very different, Tuscan revelry, but there's a certain level of they're fun, but yet there's something that feels a little bit grown up, that feels not only just really appealing, but I feel for Portland to be continue to grow as a great food city. We need these kinds of places in addition to the, you know, kind of badass pork bombing places. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, Ben and Kelly, you guys have both been observers of the restaurant scene here for a long time. How do you feel about these two places as change makers, I guess, in, in a sense, or we're making an argument for them as change makers? Do you feel like they are bringing something uh, and obviously they're very different places, but bringing something new to the scene. Hmm. Karen just gave an entire thesis on that statement. <laughs> I don't think we need to say much I'm more about it. I am no, so that was sorry. Awesome. I am so sorry. This is why I love working with Karen. Right. I'm always hungry after yeah. she talks. Absolutely. Uh, no, I don't think there's much more to add. You know, we were lucky enough to eat with Karen on many of these, these trips to these places, and there is a definite sense of a push forward, a lightness, and excitement, and not being content with what is considered Portland food. We all have, I mean, just like Portlandia has stereotypes, just we have stereotypes about Portlanders, we have stereotypes of Portland food, and they are delicious stereotypes. <laughs> we can wrap ourselves in pork. We could, I mean, I, I, and, and that's great. There's nothing wrong with that, but this is just pushing the envelope in a different direction. And the food is truly delicious at both these places. So um, I'm, I'm very happy that we went out on a limb with these two. Um, I think it's, it's exciting to be able to make a fuss over places that just aren't content to be one of many. Agreed. Don't have too much to add. <laughs> uh, ben, I was just thinking as as Kelly was talking, a couple of the places that you wrote about in the in the feature, Han Oak and Hot Yai, mm -hmm. um, very different takes on different Asian cuisines. Mm -hmm. As Revelry is, and as Karen said, sort of a riff on Korean. Mm -hmm. um, could you kind of orient us a little bit about those two places and, and what they are adding to this? Uh, what seems like growing map of Asian cooking in Portland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Han Oak is uh, a little spot from a chef, uh, Peter Cho. Um, he's a New York transplant who uh, worked under uh, famous chef April Bloomfield for many years. Um, first at the Spotted Pig and then I, th I believe at the Breslin. Um, and he's uh, super talented. He, he's actually from Oregon originally, um, and he moved back here kind of with a dream to open a, a wood-fired Korean place. He is Korean himself. Um, and it took him a while to sort of figure out his concept, um, and it's still, it's still sort of forming now, uh, but basically how it ended up was we have this spot that is um, his house, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> um, 
uh, it's 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 sort of a, a secret location uh, in the sense that there's um, bad signage and it's tucked between <laughs> other restaurants. Uh, Portland Portland's secret, yeah. like right. not necessarily intentionally secret, mm. but we just we we couldn't quite be bothered mm. to make a good sign. Exactly. Right. Um, uh, there's a there's a kind of beautiful uh, courtyard um, where he projects movies and uh, there's a wood furnace and um, and then beyond that there's his kitchen uh, which I think also acts as his home kitchen um, so there he's got a very informal um, uh, sort of casual eatery which is now um, reservation only but you can actually call and make reservations it's not like an online lottery system sort of like a like loft right, right? uh huh uh huh um, yeah, so there he's doing, he's kind of doing his own own take on Korean cooking. It's not necessarily modern, but he's taking, um, you know, staples of, of traditional Korean eating, you know, uh, kimchi, um, uh, pancakes, uh, uh, bosom, that kind of thing, and, and making it his own with the experience um, he has working in these great kitchens. Um, and bringing farm fresh in. Yeah, certainly. I mean, everything everything he uses is um, extremely local. Um, so I would say, as much as as much as the food is sort of his own take on Korean cooking, the experience is very new as well. Um, I think for most people to um, eat Korean food in that setting, in such um, such a like a comfortable informal family setting, um, is a pretty wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. I mean. When I first when I first met him, um, he sort of welcomed me in. Um, his family was there, of course, because they live there, <laughs> um, and he was just sort of hanging out with us, um, eating and drinking with us, talking to us. And I thought, oh, he's doing this because I um, I'm a magazine editor. I work in the industry. But over the course of several visits, I sort of noticed that he did that with everyone, complete strangers, um, all sort mm-hmm. of uh, welcome in his mm-hmm. home. Cool. cool. Um, yeah. And then uh, shifting gears, uh, we've got Hot Yai, which is a um, a new spot from Earl Ninsum, who is probably best known for opening um, Long Bon, uh, the sort of multi-course dining experience tucked behind his Thai restaurant, mm-hmm. Pad Di. Which was our um, restaurant of the year two years ago? 2014. 2014, yeah. Right, and has subsequently <laughs> become an almost impossible reservation to right. obtain. It's right. more like a dream of a restaurant. Yeah, it's that's like a right. Shangri-La. Well, kind right. of like Holdfast yeah, exactly. was sort of part of this Right, part yeah, of it was this that, 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 yeah, yeah, Longbon came along kind of right at that moment when we were seeing all these pop-ups and other concepts that were not traditional restaurants with different formats um, and uh, was probably, I guess, arguably uh, the one that rose the highest and fastest among them to the point where it's now a sought-after destination for national. They are booked right yeah. now until March. Yeah, yeah. Like mm-hmm. and people people are coming here to eat yeah. at Long Bond. So this is hot yeah, yeah. now is is his place, but you can actually get in. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's one of the, the big appeals. But um, uh, and, and people people often often compare it to Long Bond or say, you know, this is the another like Long Bond spinoff. But it's actually um, it's actually completely different. I mean, it, it's. It's is it's in no way related apart from the fact that it is still technically Thai food, um, but it comes from uh, southern Thailand, which is um, sort of on the border with Malaysia, and there you have a, a cuisine that's very different. Um, you know, there's a large Muslim population, a, a tropical climate, so um, 
so the, f the flavors and techniques used are very different. The, the sort of signature dish there is a, um, is a Thai fried chicken, which comes with these huge chunks of coriander sort of embedded in the skin um, and served with this incredible uh, rust-colored uh, curry and uh, roti. Um, the flatbread, that mm -hmm. Malaysian right. fry. fry bread. Exactly. Um, and so, and, and so what, what Earl's kind of done is um, introduce us to a side of um, Thai cooking that we've never seen, a region that most people mm -hmm. um, stateside haven't experienced, uh, which is a big deal in Portland because uh, we kind of have a, um, a really superb but narrow uh, view of Thai cooking um, from, of course, Andy Ricker, whose um, Pak Pak Empire has, um, you know, explored the street foods of northern Thailand. Um, and then, of course, our proliferation of just Americanized Thai cooking. Um, so what Earl's done is kind of given us this, this perspective mm -hmm. of southern Thai cooking. Mm -hmm. And Kelly, you wrote about May, which a completely different thing, which in a weird way seems philosophically in tune with Han Oak, with some of these other restaurants that have taken a cuisine and applied a, a, a sort of fresh perspective on it gone really deep into farm fresh ingredients. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about May. Well, absolutely. If you said Southern cooking uh, to a Portlander, they would think you, they they had it down. They knew what they were talking about. They would tell you about the line at screen door. They would tell, you know, they would talk your ear off about things. And uh, Maya Lovelace from May is bringing something totally different. This is sort of Southern Appalachian cooking. This is the cooking that she remembers sitting down at her grandmother's table when she was a kid and her grandma's name is May. And so she's created this very farm fresh vision of Southern cooking that is light years from what we've had in this town before. Uh, Maya, her food and her personality, really it's the personification of a hug. I mean, that's what this place is all about. She wants you to feel welcome. She wants this food to embrace you and excite you to this new vision of, of, of Southern cooking. Um, Maya, uh, she was, uh, she worked at Beast for quite a long time, and she was also at Husk, uh, which is also a very famous restaurant in Southern North Carolina. I think it's Charleston, South Charleston, Carolina. Charleston, in South Carolina. Yeah. So she already had a pedigree when she came here to Portland, uh, but May is only three days a week. She does a big 10-courser on Wednesdays. She does a meet-and-three dinner on Mondays, and now she does Sunday brunch, which, for my money, is one of the very best in town. And a hallmark of this is that no matter how good that fried chicken is, and it's great, um, what you come away with is a new appreciation for pickles. You come, a new come away with a new appreciation for the richness yet lightness of her grits and the way she, she, you know, she deals with shrimp. All of these little details that would be relegated to sides or relegated to just small given moments at another restaurant, she makes central to her table. She is absolutely obsessive about ingredients. She actually works with a farmer at Black Locust Farm here um, in the Portland metro area who is growing different vegetables just for her, just for May, just for a three night a week restaurant is having its own vegetables grown. I mean, last time I talked to her, she wasn't even talking about what was on her menu. She was talking about uh, leather britches, which is this bizarre Appalachian dish that she wants to feed people next year. Right. That right. she is She's working with the farmer to grow greasy beans yeah. right now so she can string them up, ferment them, and make them into this like like leather britches stew for like literally the end of 2017. <laughs> so she is a, she is a broad thinker. 
she is impossibly welcoming and all of her dinners are in this tiny sort of like warehouse space behind old salt old salt market on northeast 42nd it's drafty it's loud everybody's laughing everybody's drinking you know byob uh you know whiskey drinks and sharing and her and her partner zach are just sort of floating around the room making you feel welcome which is very much in tune with han oak it is an imminently relaxed experience and yet that that bedrock of technique and style is there and you never forget it you never forget that this is a real legitimate enterprise a legitimate restaurant that you're going to at the same time uh so maya has carved out a special little place here in town and what's cool about her also is that you know she is trying to make this part of a work-life balance she has been in big kitchens and she has decided that the best way for her to showcase this new vision of of southern food is to do it less often with sort of more heart and more sanity which is a really unique thing from from chefs especially in this town mm -hmm. it does seem it did seem as this all came together that we were seeing this sort of critical mass of uh really great talent uh with really in some cases very impressive pedigree uh, a, a sort of more intent focus it seems like on hospitality and the actual experience than is perhaps let's say stereotypical of the Portland restaurant experience. Mm -hmm. um, not that that's necessarily always been true, but I, th I certainly think uh, these places seem to be embodying a new focus on that. Um, and all this creative, great cooking going on, which leads me to ask the question, why didn't any one of these restaurants stand out as restaurant of the year? Or why, to put it another way, doesn't this year lend itself to being embodied by a restaurant of the year? Uh, well, if I can uh, jump jump in on this, you know, it's 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 so interesting with Restaurant of the Year. I actually initially um, came up with the idea when I worked at Willamette Week, where I started my career here, and I was very influenced at the time. This idea of like Time Magazine, you know, was man man of the year, right? Maybe it's probably Person of the Year now, um, but there was this like like a figure that that spoke to the moment and I thought like that would be like an interesting I, an interesting thing was it was there a restaurant that could do that and eventually carried the idea to the Oregonian and now here we are we're in a restaurant we're in a city now where like restaurant of the year I get asked that question more than anything I just mentioned working on the restaurant guide I went what is, what is it is it? <laughs> so, <laughs> we'll never tell. Not for a thousand years. A doctor tried to extract that <laughs> that, that from me once. You know, it's it like, like it was. It, it was big. Come on, come on, tell me. Um, so you know, it was it was really a huge decision this year, the first time ever in my in my career in Portland of of not having a restaurant of the year. We're also in this huge time of change in port in the city, and restaurants being part of that. We are f we are fast growing. We are fast changing. We don't even know what that will look like. Uh, restaurants. Uh, we had many closures this year. I don't know. It had maybe 30, 40 restaurants went under. Um, new places springing up. A lot of our established chefs. Um, branching out and opening like their own like for lack of another word you know mini chains so they're kind of off doing their their own thing so there's that that to consider we're trying to take a look at what what does that mean and then we come back to the timing factor 
if we looked at last year, uh, our, our restaurant of the year last year was Noda Guru, which the year before had been either our rising star or chef, chef of the year. Um, Coquine, which we had our eye on, mm -hmm. um, because knew about Katie, knew how good she, she was, had had Coquine opened when it should have. Coquine would have probably been the restaurant of the year. And then Noduguru, which is just really just such a high expression of Japanese cooking and super hardcore sushi nights. Now this year moved finally into their own brick and mortar after being sort of like a in, in more of like a temporary rigged up pop-up space. They would have been the, the could have been the restaurant of the year. So there is just that fluke X factor of timing. Um, that said, so as all these things were moving quickly and changing, we had candidates, we had places we talked about, mm -hmm. Chesa is a place, um, we are so lucky to have a restaurant like Chesa, Jose um, Chesa's sort of more modern expressions of Catalan and regional uh, Spanish cooking fantastic paella more passion than you could ever ask for <laughs> right. in, in a restaurant he has been our chef of the year we have tracked he also has a taula a beloved restaurant kind of at the last minute we felt there were a couple things that maybe took it away we were really strong and happy about this is one of the defining right. restaurants of the year was it going to be the restaurant of the year felt like the room itself still needed to, you know, grow in, maybe wear in a little better. It feels a little bit like a bank lobby to me anyway. Yes. Their bar, which opened with an amazing collection of drinks, including, you know, the best gin and tonic I had personally ever had. Um, their early bartender ended up going someplace else. Their bar now, I think, is very solid. But it was it the magic of when it first opened? So I think when we started looking at those two things, because the restaurant of the year becomes so loaded, the expectations become so high. And so we felt, you know, maybe let's not just force it. If we look back at the restaurants of the year, even let's say a place like Longbon, Longbon that year or maybe any year, a, a La Pigeon, a Noda Guru, in some ways you have to kind of have all the elements mm -hmm. together and this was just one of those years where we had all these places we were excited about but didn't want to feel like we had to make one of them just stand for all of the visions of the values and talk about timing the pizza jerk saga <laughs> <laughs> intervened in our decision making for sure yeah and what karen's talking about i mean it's not like we have one meeting for the best restaurants issue to pick restaurant of the year and then it's done we're like we just shake hands we're like thank you now we've figured it out See you again i mean next this year. is a long-term conversation of karen blowing into rooms and <laughs> and putting her fist down and saying i found it and then maybe like i don't know three hours later nope i haven't found it it doesn't i've made a mistake it doesn't feel right anymore um and after months and months of, and I think with Ben and, and Zach too, with months and months of talking to Karen, um, it, we were excited about the trend. We were excited about the field 
this 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 field of new restaurants more than one and sometimes that happens and it, it seemed foolhardy to to pick just one when we wanted to give a handful of them more equal weight and i think karen's going to talk about uh 180 a little bit uh, a little bit later so we can save dessert of the year but pizza jerk was another candidate for restaurant of the year at one point pizza jerk as most people know at this point is Tommy Habits um, of Bunk Sandwiches. It's his pizza parlor, his punk rock uh, throwback 1980s kid-friendly pizza parlor. Imagine the place that you went to when you were a kid with your family. If it was Portland, maybe you went to Sunshine Pizza, maybe you went to Pietro's. Uh, just then imbued with punk rock spirit uh, and uh, just transplanted down to Northeast 42nd Avenue. When it opened, it blew people away. Uh, East Coast style pies, uh, a weird influx of what we affectionately call Tommy Stoner food, which, you know, <laughs> it would be sort of, you know, Dan Dan, uh, Dan Dan chili oil uh, pizzas and fried rice and just this wild lineup of everything from just perfectly solid, amazing pepperoni pizzas to these wild insane pizza creations that you didn't quite know what you were going to get and pizza jerk just it, people fell in love with it absolutely it was a it was a place that had amazing high quality pushing the envelope kind of food but you could also take your kids and not feel bad going there you could sing along to black flag and mm -hmm. scream it while your kids were running around the dining room and everybody was okay with it right. does it get better than that no really? it literally doesn't um and well for some <laughs> for me it doesn't uh and then as as pizza jerk progressed it just started the you know sort of the mandate for it just kept getting deeper you know tommy and his crew uh, tore up the old nasty asphalt parking lot behind them and planted this huge garden. It was an Italian garden with rare Italian tomatoes and Asian herbs and they were planning to use it for all of these specials. It had really started to become a community gathering place. And then... Dun dun dun! <laughs> it burnt down. <laughs> uh, they had... I mean, it's not a laughing matter. No one was injured. No one was injured, yes, including... <laughs> The, including the class of grade schoolers who was there for a special lunch. Yeah, right. there were no uh, nuns, but it was there were no nuns, called. but there yeah. were grade schoolers. So, uh, in the middle of the summer, during one of the hottest weeks of the year, a, a an electrical box on the outside of Pizza Jerk caught fire, and it burnt a large portion of one of the restaurant's walls and most of its roof. And right around this time, they they closed. They the kitchen was okay, but their dining room was toast. Uh, they didn't know how long it was going to take for them to be reopened. In the middle of this, uh, Bon Appetit, the national magazine, uh, honored them as Pizzeria of the Year, one of the 50 restaurants, mm -hmm. you know, that they were that they were lauding this year, and it was closed. Uh, and so that was also, as we were talking about Restaurant of the Year, Pizza Jerk was one of those special places that we had and on the list. We'd done a big review. We'd done March, a big review we were, of it. You know, excited about it. Um, and so we had to take that into account. Luckily, Pizza Jerk, as of September, opened, reopened, with its punk rock soundtrack, uh, with plans for an expanded pinball room. Um, all the old favorites are back on the menu now. They have pan pizzas as well, which tastes like if you had a Stouffer's French bread pizza in heaven, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, soft serve ice cream, proper DQ style, as Tommy likes to call it. Mm -hmm. So Pizza Jerk is back. And uh, that was something that was a real treat, was to be able to share that story in the best restaurants package and have them as one of the 12 that we really wanted to talk about. Because, man, talk about a tough road back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and they're back and doing better than ever. 
But again, you know, when you're sitting down to a meeting trying to talk about, well, what's our restaurant of the year, you don't usually think that you're going to have to deal with the fire department in your, your thought process. Right. The saga of the year is what we kept right. calling yeah. it. Well, and it, and, and it was closed and it was not clear yeah. when, it, it, when it was going to, to reopen. No, we didn't so know we, so we had that, you know, then again, we get back to the sheer X factor. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, there is a lot of good stuff in the issue. Uh, there's Baruch and Ramen. There is Farm Spirit, which sounds like a sort of psychedelic, aggressive vegetarian experience. Um, we are kind of <laughs> running out of time. I think it would be remiss of us not to talk about, as Kelly said, the dessert of the year, um, which sort of wedged itself alongside our write-up of Chesa. Um, who wants to talk about the magical tube of fried dough? Well, I'll jump in. Anybody, sure. anybody right, jump in. I, I, I would like to say that at one point on the table of discussion was, might we actually name a churros and drinking chocolate spot the restaurant of the year? This mm -hmm. is how excited we are about 80, 180, which is an arm of Chesa. So talk about, you know, what an incredible one-two punch. So, so churros, if you don't know, are sort of elongated Spanish-style donuts, uh, not too sweet, really meant to be dipped in drinking chocolate. Every, you, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a shop like this in this country. I'm not even sure in much of Spain mm -hmm. you would get churros at this level, freshly made to order, freshly filled to order, drinking chocolate made with um, exceptional local bean-to-bar chocolate, um, and also in very Portland-style monthly collaborations mm -hmm. with different chefs, so there's always some really cool special. It's, uh, it's, it's a great place. It's transcendent. Kelly, I know you have Mike feelings no, about no, 180. We have a, a pretty strong Portland ga uh, uh, donut game in Portland. I don't do. know if you, I don't know if you've heard about the donuts in Portland. Our, our fried donut game is on point. You guys heard about the fact that we have donuts? Yeah, and and there's partisans, but 180 sort of brings the best of Portland, uh, uh, Portland kitchens uh, to to a new level when it comes to dessert. They're absolutely delicious, and I defy you to find a person who's not going to like them. I mean, they really do slay all comers. Um, and it's a fun, happy space. They care so much about what they're doing. Um, it's just a whole new experience. It's, I don't really, honestly, I don't have anything else to say about it. You should go eat 180 churros right now. And Absolutely. and get get the drinking chocolate oh, and just dip them right yeah. in. Yeah, and cancel you the can rest dip of your afternoon. <laughs> I'm honestly incapable of forming words about it at this point. I just want one. Um, I, maybe a, as a closing note, we should talk a little bit about what's coming next in this scene of ours. Uh, ben, what uh, what are you excited about? There's a bunch of new stuff happening. I'm like Dame would be one of them. Right. <laughs> I'm gonna need a moment to uh, to look. It's all right. We can take a minute. Formulate my. We're gonna edit this down. Right? Oh yeah, who's editing? <laughs> uh, We're not gonna make you look slow game. at all. Never. Um, in terms of new spots that are um, sort of just blossoming and showing what, what they can do, I'm super excited about uh, Dame, which is um, an, uh, Portland's first all-natural wine-focused restaurant um, on Northeast Killingsworth, I believe. Um, it's a space that, uh, it's a space that 
uh, came together thanks to uh, Dana Frank, um, who is one of the co-owners of the restaurant. Um, she's kind of like a a little bit of a, a wine savant, and certainly um, certainly a leader in the natural wine movement. Um, the space is beautiful. Um, uh, I would I would say feminine, sexy, um, and and the the wine list is, is unlike uh, any you'd find um, elsewhere in Portland, and, and probably not not in the country um, in terms of its range of natural wine, both um, local and international. Wallpapers in, baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is some good-looking wallpaper. wallpaper. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Couple other places that uh, we're excited about. Uh, Nomad is getting ready uh, to open its first brick-and-mortar. Uh, one of our, we actually had rising two stars rising stars past, yeah. last year, too, co- in addition to Coquine. Nomad then sort of squatting unrestaurant style. Mm-hmm. Um, downtown Portland. There are two young experimental modernists who now have their own space, which is right uh, next door to, to Han Oak in the blossoming neighborhood uh, northeast Sandy and Gleason. Is that right? Uh, so they're getting ready to open. Uh, all I know is uh, they're thinking big and ambitious. Uh, so we're definitely excited about Nomad um, Headwaters just open. Headwaters is just open. Headwaters is Vitaly Paley's grand rethinking, reimagining, re everything of the Heathman Hotel restaurant bar and um, eventually their tea court. Uh, he has transformed that stately space into something much more modern, and he's focusing it all on seafood. Apparently, I need to clap when I say seafood, <laughs> uh, and, and not just saying sort of not just lip service like we like seafood, but <laughs> literally, I mean, a love letter to the oceanic critters uh, of of Oregon. He's got Ken Norris, who uh, was the chef for Riffle Northwest, in the kitchen with him, and uh, they have a ambitious, massive lineup of seafood entrees. Um, a lot of them are French technique with a little bit of Northwest flair. So everything is, it's one of those places that you're going to be able to take, um, you know, family who may not be that adventurous and they'll be able to have a beautiful sort of roasted fish or a whole fish for the table and have something lovely to eat while you're over at the raw bar, you know, doing sea urchin shooters and having octopus carpaccio. This is really one of those restaurants that may be able to strike a balance for all sorts of different kinds of eaters in Portland. I mean, it brings excitement back to hotel dining in a way that I haven't felt in quite a long time. And maybe this is not your grandmother's uh, Heathman Hotel dining experience. It, it, it isn't, right? and it's it's really exciting to see. Vitaly and Ken are, are working incredibly hard with this. They have um, a great crew, and their secret weapon is Jeff McCarthy, who used to be the pastry chef at 1001, who has created a pastry lineup of deceptively simple sort of straightforward desserts involving a lot of chocolate towers and passion fruit that are just layered and interesting and and far beyond what you'd usually find in sort of a middle of the road hotel restaurant it's pretty amazing it's um, been a long time since i've had a chocolate tower you're gonna like this tower i believe is that the one that's called the sexual chocolate it's called sexual chocolate so how could you go wrong they they all blush when they say it. and they're like we weren't gonna really name it that it was a joke but now it's on the menu sexual chocolate is on the menu at the heathman which i feel is a is a strike for as i said it's not your it's the 21st century everybody um thanks so much everybody we've got uh, kelly clark karen brooks ben tepler i'm zach dundas our best restaurants issue is out on newsstands right now. 
go buy thousands of copies, please. Um, and uh, there's lots more in the package. Uh, huge uh, rundown of essential Portland restaurants, some great nightlife choices, great carts, all kinds of things. So uh, thanks very much for listening to The Long Play, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs> Terrible extra. Let's, let's redo that. Let's do that. Okay. You should like that. Blah, 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 blah. Maybe I'll talk faster next time.